On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Steve McKinnon about Cyril of Alexandria. So we cover topics like just who is Cyril and why is he important? What is the Nestorian controversy and how did he play into that? What were his main theological writings, his main theological contributions? Why should we care about patristic thinkers like him and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's designed to generate and to promote serious thinking for a serious church. But in thinking seriously, like we always say, we want to do it with particular virtues in mind. And the ones that we've singled out all start with C's because we're good Baptists. So those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. At bottom, what we're trying to do is create an intellectual climate that is both rigorous in our thinking, that isn't just saying all that intellectual stuff is fluff, that's not necessary for the local church, it doesn't matter. We want to say, no, it does matter. But we also want to be kind about it. We don't want to be jerks. We don't want to say, think that, you know, you've got to be, I don't know what the term is, maybe a Pharisee, but you don't want to be a know-it-all. You want to actually be gentle and you, have, you want to have these intellectual things soften your heart rather than harden them. And we believe that that can actually happen. So we're trying to promote and encourage those sorts of things. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you all to Dr. Steve McKinnon. Some of you know who he is. Uh, He's been on the podcast before. Uh, A lot of our listeners are in SBC Life, so they're probably familiar with him. I know we've got listeners who attend Southeastern where he's at, so they they know you, Dr. McKinnon, but not everybody does. So we're going to be talking about uh, Cyril of Alexandria, and I'm really excited about it. But for those who don't know who you are, Dr. McKinnon, give me the 30 to 60 second bio, who you are, and then what made you interested in thinking about just patristic theology in general? What got you started there? No, thank you, Jordan and Brandon, for uh, having me. I I love this podcast, uh, benefit from it every time I listen to it. uh, And I'm just, I'm honored to be able to have a conversation with you guys. I got started in patristics um, kind of accidentally, uh, intended to uh, go study at the University of Aberdeen uh, in uh, Reformation studies. And I really wanted to do Zwingli. Um, and in the process of reading about the Marburg Colloquy, the debate between Zwingli and Luther on the Lord's Supper, I came across these ideas that, to be honest, despite having um, an undergraduate degree in Christian studies and having a graduate degree in biblical and theological studies, were not um, extremely familiar to me. And that is these accusations of Nestorianism and Apollinarianism. So I needed to go find out what are these things kind of in greater detail and and why do these accusations matter? Started reading the fathers and uh, as someone who came up uh, as an evangelical, as as a Southern Baptist, one of the things I was fascinated by in reading the fathers was their engagement with scripture. Um, and so I was I was drawn uh, to the fathers, kind of changed the direction that I was going to take and uh, went to the University of Aberdeen, studied uh, patristics there with Ian Torrance and uh, finished in 1998, came to Southeastern Seminary. There were very few evangelicals doing patristics, much less Southern Baptists doing patristics. And so at the time, 
Um, I had an opportunity not only to teach here at Southeastern, where I remain, but also to teach at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, to teach at uh, TEDS in Chicago, do patristics uh, for a number of years at those two institutions as they were uh, waiting on finding a, a patristics scholar of their own. And there's some wonderful, wonderful patristics people there and uh, now, but enjoyed those times. So I, I've taught here at Southeastern since 98, teach in dogmatics, uh, which is just a way of uh, thinking about theology for and with the church and in patristics. Um, so my wife, uh, Ginger and I, we live here. We've got three kids. Um, our oldest was born while we were in Scotland and uh, she's about to graduate from law school, have a daughter that's in seminary. And then I have a son who's a sophomore in college as well. So we're empty nesters now. It's just more time for theology. That's good. Uh, well, Dr. McKinney, maybe we can start with uh, a biographical sketch of Cyril. Like who, how much do we know about his background, his childhood, his upbringing? Was he brought up in a Christian home, things like that? And then maybe into uh, his career as a theologian. Yeah. So Cyril uh, grew up in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, his uncle, a guy named Theophilus, was the pastor there at uh, the church in Alexandria. And he really grew up under his tutelage. Um, so there was a sense in which Cyril was somewhat destined for uh, church ministry, uh, trained under his uncle, eventually succeeded him. Uh, Cyril's a fifth century theologian around the year 412 that he became the, the pastor of the church there in Alexandria. And at the time, Alexandria was a, 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 both a city and a church that was on the decline. Alexandria had been a, a glorious city earlier. The church had been one of the, the biggest, most significant churches there. Tradition has it that Mark um, of gospel fame was the one who planted the church, still considered to be the church of St. Mark. Um, and but, but because of economic, political, and geopolitical issues, um, he had um, you know, inherited a church that was a, a bit on the decline in the empire. Uh, but he was a faithful, faithful pastor, um, an excellent, by all accounts, of uh, an excellent uh, bishop, excellent pastor, good preacher. Uh, there were some political issues that that came about. Uh, someone may be familiar with the the story of the philosopher Hypatia um, and kind of what role or wouldn't he would have there, both against paganism and against uh, Judaism, ongoing Christian debates and disputes there in, in Egypt. Um, the, these sorts of cultural and political issues aren't new in our own day, uh, happened back then as well. And we're not really sure how involved or engaged he was in, in any of those debates. But as a pastor of, of the church there and the, the bishop of all the congregations that were there, um, you know, would have had a significant influence or at least a voice. Um, and so that was that was kind of the the context in which he emerged as a as a pastor. But he's best known for the Nestorian controversy, which which begins around 428. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about the Nestorian controversy? What, what's going on there? What are the details? Um, how is he interacting with all the theological controversy that's going on? Yeah, so Cyril, um, it, you know, obviously his hero is Athanasius uh, of Alexandria, is very much uh, in his early ministry, in his early career, is continuing to battle Arianism. Uh, Arianism, you know, had had a lasting influence in the empire for some time, even after Nicaea. 
as emperors changed, so too did the fate of the, the Nicenes or the, the anti-Nicenes, uh, the Arians. Um, and so most of Cyril's early career is, is dealt with helping his congregation avoid Arianism, helping to teach them how they can understand the relationship between the father and the son um, in a way that uh, makes sense in terms of the gospel. Well, around 428, uh, Nestorius becomes the pastor of the church at Constantinople. Uh, Nestorius was a young guy at the time. He was kind of an upstart. Uh, as, as happens in prominent churches, a lot of times they'll go after the, the young, kind of, you know, the, the shining light, if you will. And so Constantinople uh, brought Nestorius in to be, uh, to be the pastor. Nestorius tended to be influenced more by the Antiochian tradition. Um, which was at odds oftentimes with the Alexandrian tradition. And one of the things that Nestorius started to do quite early in his ministry was to, to lay out a, a path that he would be following, kind of make a name for himself, if you will. And one of the things he did was to question the, the way that the church in its liturgy had spoken of um, Mary as the one who gave birth to God. Uh, the, the Theotokos, the, sometimes it's translated the mother of God. The, the point in the being the mother of the God, it, it, the mother of God is that she's the one who gave birth to him. It's literally the bearer of God. Well, he said that we shouldn't use that language, that the church is wrong to do that and should instead call her the one who gave birth to Christ. Um, and uh, his reason for uh, rejecting the idea of uh, Mary giving birth to God is he felt like that uh, tied God's existence and, and Jesus' existence as God tied it to his birth from Mary. Well, he got some approval in, uh, you know, from people in the congregation, some other churches and other theologians for taking that stand. Well, it got to Cyril and Cyril said, wait a minute, you, we can't say this. This is something that Christians have for 400 years now have been recognizing that Mary gave birth to God and that she plays a very important role in the New Testament, in the Gospels with this regard. And so Cyril wrote to Nestorius and said, did you really mean this? Is this true? Now, there are probably some political things. Let's be honest uh, with this. Constantinople is growing in its influence and uh, Alexandria is declining in its influence. Cyril is the older guy who's been in ministry for a while, has been a theologian for a while. Nestorius is the young upstart. So there, there probably are some personal things, if we're being honest, that, that may go into this. But the fact is, he reaches out to Nestorius and says, we, we can't say this. We can't deny that Mary gave birth to, to God. Now, it would make sense for him, for Cyril at least, that this would be an important deal because he's been combating the Arians all along. And the essence of Arianism is that Jesus is not fully God. And a rejection of Mary as the bearer of God, as the mother of God, would, would uh, allow for an Arian confession that, well, see, Jesus isn't fully God. He's someone else. He's maybe an in-between or he's a, uh, an intermediary figure. Well, what Nestorius does, and this is probably being young and not very politically astute, is he just ignores him. He just blows him off. Like, who do you think you are? You know, I'm the, I'm the bishop of Constantinople. And uh, that, that doesn't make Cyril happy that Nestorius would blow him off. And so he writes another letter. Nestorius tries to defend himself a little bit, but largely just dismisses Cyril's accusations. And so Cyril follows up with uh, what's called his third letter. So the third letter to Nestorius. 
and he includes in it 13 anathematisms and uh, says to Nestorius, you have to affirm these 13 anathematisms or I'm going to consider you to be a heretic. And uh, Nestorius at that point then goes on the offensive and says, well, not only am I not going to accept these 13 anathematisms, but I'm actually going to call you a heretic, Um, which leads to a real split in the church, ultimately to the third ecumenical council at Ephesus um, in 431. Um, And that really divides the church for a while. We're going to get some reunification that comes along, but it's a, um, it, it ultimately comes down to the question of, is the, is the human birth of Jesus attributable to the Son of God, to God the Son, or is it not attributable to him? And that fundamentally is where the theological debate is going to be. Is, are there two subjects in Jesus, um, one that's human and one that's divine, or is there only one subject that is an active agent? to whom we attribute all of the actions, sayings, and experiences of Jesus. Nestorius is going to divide Jesus into two active agents, one human, one divine, and Cyril is going to try to unite them together. Ultimately, Cyril's position is going to win the day. That's that's our view in uh, Chalcedonian Christianity. But So you're telling me that we should have given these guys Twitter because it would have been pretty epic. <laughs> You know how amazing it would have been if they had Twitter. It would have been it have been crazy when you read their correspondence uh, to one another or about one another. You know they don't they don't pull punches. It's not to say that they're mean and rude and that they're jerks to one another. Um, some of it is cultural. It's the way they talk to each other, the way they interact. You know, you may you may even with your friends you may you know call them a punk that you wouldn't call somebody a punk on Twitter or something like that. But um, yeah, it's it was it was pretty intense. There's no doubt. So I've seen quite a few people, I don't know, recently, I don't know if it's just recently, but they, they sort of say Nestorius kind of got bad press. He really ends up actually fundamentally, I think, being very close or agreeing to what Cyril wants to say, but the politics sort of get in the way to where it kind of inflates his head to where he doesn't want to sign off on the dotted line sort of thing. Would you say that that's accurate where Nestorianism as a theological concept is wrong? But Nestorius, the man, would he actually subscribe to Nestorianism? Yes. So that's the short answer. Um, to what extent what he does at the end of his uh, of his life after he's condemned as a heretic, um, to what extent some of that might be motivated by a uh, just a desire to persist uh, and to reject any kind of reconciliation? We don't really know. But what happens is that at the at the end of his career, he writes uh, his book of Heraclides, right? So this thing gets, gets discovered um, 100 years ago or so. And um, it, in, in this book, he says, look, I'm not really what you accuse me of being. I'm something else. And then when he describes, so it goes into great detail. It's the greatest example. It's from his own pen, where it's the greatest example of his own theology and in the, the book of Heraclides or the, the bazaar, it's a mistranslation of that word there, but sometimes it's called bazaar. He, he ultimately subscribes to what we consider Nestorianism. Um, he tries to use some language to get around it, uh, uses this language of persona versus person, hypostasis versus uh, not nature or physis. But in the end, he basically says, look, I'm not a Nestorian. Here's what I really am. And then he describes Nestorianism. So, you know, again, whether that at the end of his life is, 
this is what you accused me of. I'm not really that, but I'm going to say the things that I said before because I'm not going to change my mind about this. You've already condemned me anyway. Or if he really subscribed to it, we just don't know. Right. So, you know, most of the things that he actually wrote, um, we don't we don't have. But we do have this particular book, which is which is pretty clear what he uh, what he subscribed to. And, and uh, I, you know, I think it's it's somewhat unmistakable in the bizarre that you get you get in Nestorianism. Now, there are scholars are patristic scholars, and this is a real debate as to whether or not what he's saying, the language he's using really is Nestorianism. Um, because he's trying to, by using this notion of a persona, a persopon um, in Greek, he's trying to get away from Nestorianism. Like he's saying, I'm not really saying that, but he never comes to language that is, that, that's Chalcedonian. And so the Nestorian church that continues to persist to this day, uh, I, I think still continues to embrace what, what he said. And, um, you know, I, I, so I, I subscribe to the school of thought that that Nestorius really was a Nestorianism. One of the things that I think people are most most interested in hearing about when we start talking about uh, church fathers and this this time period in church history is is hermeneutics. Uh, is there anything uh, distinctive about the hermeneutics of Cyril, or how would you describe the way that he interpreted the Bible? Yeah, and this is a this is an exciting area, exciting field. Cyril's notion of, of uh, scripture, not just Cyril's, but the patristic reading of the Bible. There's a lot of uh, rediscovery. My my book um, on Cyril's Christology, kind of reconstructing his Christology, focuses a great deal on hermeneutics because um, ultimately these debates in many ways come down to hermeneutics. Um, it's not merely that they come down to we've got different different language we want to use for theology or we have quote-unquote different beliefs. There's a hermeneutical underpinning that leads to a lot of these these uh, differences in theological explication. So Cyril's um, uh, hermeneutic, we might recognize it within the tradition of uh, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Cyril, kind of that school of thought, if you will. Um, and so we, we probably need to see that's an axis around which his theological conclusions are going to are, are going to come. That notion, that form of hermeneutics is what we call partitive exegesis. And that is that when reading scripture, uh, the Bible uh, talking about Christ is going to speak of the same person in two different ways. That is how he is human and how he is God, how he is divine. And what the exegete has to do in wrestling with these texts is come to the conclusion of in this particular instance, is this exegesis um, meant to lead us to an understanding of Jesus vis-a-vis -vis his humanity or vis-a-vis -vis his divinity? And if you if you confuse those two things together, then you start getting off, off track. This is what happens, say, with the Arians. When Athanasius and the Arians are um, discussing Proverbs 8, for example, uh, they both believe that it was about Jesus, which is a lot different than modern hermeneutics, right? If you talk to modern exegetes, they would say, well, no, 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 this is not talking about Jesus. It's about somebody else. But universally, they believe that this was uh, talking about Jesus, but how it was talking about Jesus differed. So this is the notion of being created, if you will. So for the Arians, 
it was talking about Jesus with regard to his divinity, so that he was he was created subsequent to the Father, right? There was a time when the Son was not, and Proverbs 8 supports that. Well, for Athanasius, it supports the, the fact that this is his incarnation that it's talking about, and this eternal begottenness is not the same thing as a createdness, which is what the, the Nicene Creed says, and there's the reason why the Nicene Creed says that. So Cyril is the heir of that form of exegesis, that, that hermeneutic that says all of the text is about, is about Christ. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. The Old Testament has to be read as Christian scripture and recognizing that uh, from, from kind of beginning to end, the writers are trying to tell us something about Christ. But part of exegesis enables us to see that some of this um, uh, exegesis is leading us to an understanding of Christ in his humanity, other in his divinity, but it's always about Christ. It's not two different people. Um, so that, that ultimately there's a union in our reading and understanding of Jesus in these texts. That type of pre, um, pre-modern exegesis and pre-modern hermeneutic would then enable Cyril to um, be able to, against an Nestorius, say, look, just like the Arians, what you've done is you've missed this part of exegesis. You've missed that while there are there are instances when the text is talking about Jesus with regard to his humanity and regard to his divinity, there's only one Jesus that's being talked about. And that that one Jesus is God incarnate. So this notion of Jesus being the mother of God, then you, you say, well, who was born of Mary? And it's the son of God was born of Mary, but he was born of Mary vis-a-vis his humanity, not vis-a-vis his divinity. And that's the notion of there being just one single subject in Christ who has these two natures, as opposed to like Nestorius, where you're saying, no, only the man was born of, of, of Mary, not the son of God. Part of it was Nestorius didn't want to impugn the Son of God with a human birth. Um, and so that, that Nestorius is coming from a different exegetical tradition, different hermeneutical tradition, Theodore of Mopsuestia, Didor of Tarsus, those guys, as opposed to this uh, Irenaeus, Athanasius, and, and Cyrillian uh, axis. That's good. So, you know, when, when people, I think, think of guys like Cyril and everybody else in the Patristic Age or even Medieval Age and, and, and further, I don't think a lot of them, when their names come to their mind, think these guys are also pastors. What comes to their mind is academics and serious theological education. So as we think about them, maybe can you walk me through a little bit, a little bit about what their pastoral responsibilities and duties looked like? Um, and maybe what should pastors today glean from them? Have we uh, leaned too far in one particular direction when it comes to the pastoral calling, where we're missing something that was there in the patristic era that is should be recovered? Yeah, so part of the reason why is uh, people are accessing the fathers in English translations. And there are there's so many thousands of writings from the early church that still remain untranslated. When, when there were efforts made to translate this to, to English, the translators had to decide, well, which books are we going to translate, right? So like in the early Christian fathers, the anti-Nicene, Nicene, and post-Nicene fathers, 
for example, you have um, you're you're picking and choosing. All right, what are we going to translate now? And what people wanted to translate, particularly then when you were having this uh, desire of uh, reclaiming the the church fathers and um, this kind of Anglo-Catholic revival that was going on, was they wanted the the dogmatic works. They wanted the theological, the, the those things that showed conflict and how the conflict was meant to be overcome theologically and that sort of thing. And so the, the sense that you oftentimes get is that all these guys did were, they wrote these kind of, if you will, highfalutin theology books. You know what I mean? But Cyril, for example, the vast majority of his writings that exist are commentaries on scripture and sermons. But those things until recently just haven't been translated to the same extent as his dogmatic and theological works. So what we miss out on is the fact that these guys were week in and week out. They were preparing messages to preach to people in their in their churches and that that occupied the vast majority of their work. So the sermons that they have that then, if you will, get turned into commentaries um, are are the most important thing that they're doing as pastors. But sometimes we miss that because we only focus on the the theological conflicts they have or their dog, dogmatic works. So the teaching that they're doing is is for them the most important thing, but for us as students sometimes is is the least important. We haven't we haven't seen them. Uh, there are some good works that are are coming out and a lot of translation that's happening right now. Uh, the ancient Christian commentary on scripture that Tom Oden oversaw. I did the Isaiah volume in that and it, it became an entree into some of these commentary material because that's what they love, right? The fathers loved the Bible. And we we sometimes miss that point. They loved scripture. And all of their theology is an engagement with scripture. We don't just, sometimes we don't see them engaging with scripture. But the only reason they were able to do that is because they were preaching these texts week after week after week. They weren't just getting up on Sunday and saying, let's talk bad about the Arians or let's talk bad about the Nestorians or let's talk bad about Cyril. They were getting up and saying, let's look at this next passage here in the book of Isaiah. And they're preaching through it or or through the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. And then as a result of those things that they're doing, confessing Christ week after week, teaching through these texts, they were they were able to see where someone else was was contending for a faith that they felt like was different than, or at least saying things that they felt like challenged that faith. And that's part of what we miss, um, it, as well as their participation in the lives of, of people, the spiritual lives of people through um, not only the teaching of Scripture, but the administration of the ordinances with them. I mean, you know, the notion of word and sacrament, it's not like the Reformers invented that, you know, it was for for. Cyril, that's what he did, was he fed his people on um, on the word and, and on the ordinances, and then as a pastor, cared for people in his congregation day after day and week after week. So now I want to ask a follow-up. You talked about him preparing sermons every week. There, I, rem- I don't know how long ago it was, but I grew up in more of a contemporary church setting, and there was always this sort of sermon, standing up in front of people, delivering a message. That didn't exist until, you know, name the year 1950 or whatever it is, Reformation. Is he delivering sermons in a similar way to what we would think of today? Yeah. Now, the the service itself would probably look different than 
what most of us would experience. What we're used to is the song and sermon model, right? For at least as, as Baptists. So you have a song service, then you have a preaching service. That's not the way that the service uh, would, uh, would have operated. Uh, but we do have these descriptions, like even in, in Justin Martyr, um, and, and I love the way that Justin puts this in his apology. So he's writing to you know a pagan audience and saying, look, this is what we do when we get together as Christians, because those pagans aren't going to church, so they don't know what's happening in the worship service. And he said, you know, we have someone get up and they read a passage of scripture and we pray and then we sing some songs and then we pray some more and then we read some more scripture and then someone explains those scriptures to us. Um, and then we share, you know, we break bread at the end. We share in the Lord's Supper. And that was kind of a regular pattern of what they did. So the notion of praying and singing and reading scripture and then someone explaining the scriptures, i.e. a sermon and sharing in the Lord's Supper, the earliest records we have of what Christians did when they get together look like that. So while it may not be the song service, preaching service like we have, or sermon as a helping people to learn how to navigate their lives sermon, which we sometimes get, you know, five steps to the happy home or whatever. It, it's more exegetical and explanation of scripture, but clearly that's what, what Cyril is doing. And we have some of these examples, um, not, not as many as you have like with Chrysostom. And when you read Chrysostom's sermon, there, the sermons, there's some amazing things that you see about these early Christian writers, because remember, somebody's taking down notes while they're preaching, trying to write these things down. There's this one example. I have this book, uh, Life and Practice in the Early Church, and I tell the story in there and include this excerpt. But uh, he's preaching. Chrysostom is preaching. And he tells people that they should not be preaching for applause. And then he has this fascinating little statement that's recorded in the, in the, the manuscript of the sermon, if you will, where he says, stop applauding. So clearly what happened was he, you know, he's preaching. He's like, you shouldn't be preaching to applaud. And the congregation starts clapping. And he's like, stop, <laughs> don't do that anymore. You know, this is, but so, yeah, these guys were, they were explaining scripture to their congregation week in and week out um, as a part of a service of worship that included uh, all of these other confessions of faith and um, participation in praying and uh, singing and uh, you know, the Lord's Supper. This is something that we talked about on the episode that we had you and Dr. Hogg on together when we were discussing retrieval. And, and you made a comment about how, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to think that there was this golden age back then and we've got to go back and, and retrieve everything that they did. But as someone who is immersed in the study of the early church and someone who is also um, part of your, a large part of your job is to train pastors. Is there something that you that you really do uh, think that we should try to retrieve uh, from the practice of the early church that maybe for one reason or another has has fallen you know out of favor in the way we do church today? Without a doubt, Brandon, uh, some of what we need to retrieve is uh, an engagement with Scripture, right? So a lot of our a lot of our theology we're happy to go and quote Bible verses for, but I'm not talking about quoting Bible verses like proof texting, but really engaging with scripture. But that's not what I mean by retrieval and in, in, in terms of this engagement. I mean, in terms of the life of the church being a, a textual community where what the church is doing is trying to express in its words, its confessions, its actions, its symbols, this scriptural faith. Um, and so 
by by constantly engaging in scripture or with scripture in that way, you're able not only to guide what you're doing when you're together, but also to form a community through this type of scriptural engagement. Right? Uh, what what we sometimes do is we think of the Bible as just something that we uh, we're, we're going to provide some kind of instruction or teaching about, and it's not so much proclaiming. Christ from the scriptures as it is, let's give some type of historical background and when was this book written and what was going on with this book and that sort of thing, as opposed to our life being an engagement within community with it. A a second um, desired retrieval in our practice is to have worship that is participatory. Um, You know, again, it, it may very well be that for many of us in our congregations, particularly a song and sermon congregation that people sing and then the experts do everything else. Um, You know, our public prayers are only us praying, our reading of scripture is only us reading, our preaching is only us preaching or what have you. Uh, Finding ways to engage people in uh, the participation of worship in more than just the singing. Now, Paul, again, in Ephesians and Colossians says that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's good evidence in the scriptures and good reason for us to be singing to one another in those ways. But in the early church, you had more participation where your confessions were, um, you know, the whole congregation is making these confessions. The whole congregation is participating in, in these readings, for example, and not being merely passive. That would be another thing. A, a, a third thing is the the regular participation in communion in the Lord's in, in the Lord's table, um, you know, for for two decades or more now, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to advocate for um, more regular, if not weekly, celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, this clearly was the practice in the early church, and I think there are biblical and theological reasons for that to be something we might engage in. I'm not suggesting that a pastor go into a new church and say, starting next week, we're going to we're going to change 150 years of your church's tradition. But I I think just recognizing the value of the Lord's table in the regular practice of the church's life would be a benefit to people. And so we find this in the in the uh, early church. And and again, they give reasons for that. They don't just do it because it's tradition. There's there's reason for that. And then a final thing, and there, there are probably a whole lot more, but, uh, but a final uh, item is preparing people for baptism. Um, you know, the early church, people were being converted out of paganism into Christianity. Uh, people were becoming Christians that had grown up in the church. And uh, particularly in the, in the fourth century, where in, in the beginning of the fifth century, where you're having this struggle where... Um, paedo-baptism had become a, a big deal for, for most of the, the church, and now there's a questioning of that again. Right, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, you know, his father's a bishop, but he's 30 before he's baptized. So it wasn't, and, and he's, even, he's even arguing, maybe we ought to be putting this off a little longer. But the, the early church, um, without, without exception, was striving to train people to be Christians within the church. And baptism, whether it's their own baptism or understanding the baptism that they had received, there was instruction and teaching with regard to that that I think I think a lot of credo Baptists could learn from. Um, so if you're going to be a credo Baptist, 
then you ought to take seriously that people are being prepared for a lifetime of Christian living by their being baptized. And, you know, if it's like a marriage, um, all of us are going to do some kind of premarital count. Like we're going to recommend to people, don't just meet somebody and, and get a Las Vegas wedding. You know what I mean? Let's get a little bit of time here. But yet we do Las Vegas baptisms all the time. And it might be better for us to to learn from the early church on these things. So I think a lot of our listeners, when they discover the our history, you know, the patristic medieval Reformation eras, they find that they love them. However, a lot of our listeners who are also pastors probably struggle with thinking, how do I bring this sort of material to my actual local church? Do you have any recommendations for just how to start integrating these sort of materials into the life of the church so that it can edify the entire body and not just the pastors. Yeah. So what, what we have, I think what we have to recognize Jordan is that we're not trying to just duplicate what early Christians were doing in their context, that there really are contextual elements to our, to our church life. Um, and so let, let's think in terms of what we want to accomplish as opposed to things we want to do. And I think what pastors sometimes do is they, they don't have time to think about why they want to do things. They don't have time to think about or don't take the time maybe to think about what the intended outcome is. It's like, I want people to start saying the Apostles' Creed in my church, so we're going to start doing it. As opposed to saying, now, what's the benefit of just saying the Apostles' Creed? Can we get to the same end without having to follow just one pathway? So if it's, if it's for example, we want to have people in our church confess our faith, um, what, what I did uh, have done in the past is, for example, we just, we, would have, we just make one statement. And so it's not, let's just say the whole creed together. It's let's just say something. This is the God that we believe in, for example. And so it may be the simplest of confessional statements. Like in our baptism, we believe in one God who is Father and Son and Spirit. And it could be little things like that because there's an end you want to reach, not just a, some type of act that you want to perform. Otherwise, it's just you're not doing anything better than just your song and sermon, um, you know, church or practice or whatever. So I would say think about the end that you want to have. And part of that end is you want people to know the faith. Well, you're going to summarize the faith. Those are our, our confessions and our symbols, right? Hold a cross up. But then you also have to teach the faith. And I think sometimes we go either to one extreme or the other. And it's like, I'm just going to teach you what the faith is, but give you no summaries for it. Whether it's a creedal sum summary or a symbol that you can use or, or, you know, a gang sign that you can throw up or whatever it is. I mean, you kind of have to come up with some type of symbol but it needs to have meaning behind that. So you have to be teaching on those things and use the sermon as a chance to proclaim Christ through this exegesis and, and engagement with scripture. And by doing that, people get some depth so that the symbols can have meaning and they can be life-giving for them um, and begin to, to introduce elements to say worship and discipleship and other elements of the church's life that are more multi-sensory, that engage the emotion, that engage the mind, that engage the body. Sometimes, Brandon Jordan, in our context, we think to be super theological means to be more cerebral. 
And it's like, well, if we're really going to do theology, now we got to have a class that we teach. And here are two books that you can go read. And now I'm going to do this class on theology. But our symbols and the things we do with our bodies um, and, and the emotions that we have, we need to be appealing to all of these things in speaking to them in the life of the church. So that's that's where I would I would encourage people to start, I think. That's really helpful. So as we uh sort of wrap up here, I have two two final questions I want to ask you. So maybe there's somebody listening, they're a seminary student, they're they're interested in church history or historical theology and they maybe they're going to do some future studies in this area. Are there any specific areas uh, in Cyril that you think are under-researched that might be a good place for somebody uh, to study who's interested in these things? And then question number two, where would you start? Uh, this is for the pastor or the layperson who has never read anything by Cyril. What would be the, the one or two works by him that you think that, that would be the best place to start? Yeah, so when it comes to studies, um, the the great need right now, the, both for the for the academy, right, in scholarship and for the church, is in his exegesis, is in hermeneutics. And there's becoming this revival of interest in patristic hermeneutics, um, which means you're going to get the good, the bad, the ugly, right? So one of the benefits of everybody being excited about early Christian interpretation of the Bible is now they're going to be open to it. The, one of the pitfalls is now you're going to get bad presentations and applications of it, right? Um, but, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done, especially in Cyril, both translating his texts and also seeking to understand them. So we've had in, in recent years uh, this, this great explosion of translations of, of his uh, Genesis commentaries, his Isaiah commentary, his commentary on John that just recently came out, which is a great translation and is an amazing uh, work. So that would be the place I would say, if you want to study Cyril, his hermeneutics would be a great place to start in terms of a need to, to explore this. In terms of the, the pastor who says, I'd like to get an introduction to Cyril, some of what he says. Obviously, his commentary on, on John or his commentary on, on the Pentateuch um, would be a great start. Um, some of it, because in reading these things, you actually would find out, oh my goodness, He's saying things that actually I have believed. Um, and so it, it can draw you in and can be an encouragement to you. But there are also some things that, that he would say that would help to explain why Genesis, for example, is a Christian book. And it's not just a book about you know ancient history and what happened a long time ago. It's like, no, this is a Christian book. But there's, a, there's another very short book. It's in the, the popular patristics series, um, and it's entitled On the Unity of Christ, On the Unity of Christ um, by Cyril. And it is it probably is the starting place I would point people to. It's a short little book. Um, again, it's a, it's a very good translation that's there um, and would, would be a helpful introduction to just his writing style and what he's what he's trying to say, why this is important, um, and how essentially he's taking the the tradition that he's learned from Irenaeus and Athanasius, and now he's applying this to help people, his people, help the church, um, his congregants understand Jesus so um, in in such a, a, a robust manner that they're understanding and explication of Jesus is enriching for them and their Christian lives. So on the unity of Christ, it would probably be the, the starting place. So you've got your book on Cyril, and I put it on Amazon, 
and it looks like it's what two hundred dollars. If somebody wants to read more about what you're writing on this area, is there a place they can go for that? So yeah, not buy that book. Uh, that's um, you know uh, one. It's a heavily academic uh, text that they they wouldn't want to uh, probably wouldn't want to wade through. But if you do get it from your local library, uh, don't don't buy that. Um, it's just that expensive because of how good it is. But uh, you know, I'm only kidding. So um, and then there's also you know a place to look um, in terms of my. Um, some of the emphases in early Christianity that I think we need to rediscover and learn from is uh, my little reader life and practice in the early church. Um, it's a, it's a collection of primary texts with some introductions and, and explanatory material uh, to see what the early church was saying about a lot of these matters and how we ought to, how we ought to learn from them things that we can learn um, and so that would be a that would be a place that I would point people point people toward. Awesome. Well, thanks for this. This has been a really really helpful introduction as well as some good pastoral application. So I always like it when the two worlds collide, where we can show that these things are useful for both local church life and our own personal piety and uh, intellectual stimulation as well. I guess. So thanks for taking the time to join us. At, as a reminder, uh, if you're interested in studying, I mean, both me and Brandon went to Southeastern and Dr. McKinnon's at Southeastern. Um, I, I love the people there. I love the school there. I think it's a, a, an amazing um, educational institution. So if you're interested in patristics or you're interested in philosophy, I mean, I did philosophy there. Me and Brandon did that. We, I think they've got great departments in both of those areas. So uh, I definitely recommend checking them out, uh, giving it a look and seeing if it might be a good fit for you as a student. So. For everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.